Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. More Than a Movie is back with season two. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the Abraham Lincoln Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. The Armstrong and Getty Show. The more moral outrageous language you use, the more inflammatory language, contemptuous language, the more indignation you use, the more it will get shared. So we are being rewarded for being division entrepreneurs. (laughs) The better you are at innovating a new way to be divisive, we will pay you in more likes, followers, and retweets. Well, I hadn't noticed that at all. (laughs) People trying to be contentious and outrageous in social media online. And getting more attention thereby. 60 Minutes with an interesting feature indeed on the topic of why social media has poisoned so much discourse in the country. And they talked to Jonathan Haidt, who's one of my intellectual heroes. Uh, He's the guy who wrote that fantastic piece, Why the Last Ten Years of American Life Have Been Uniquely Stupid, that I shared with you at length at one point when Jack was ailing or something like that. Uh, It's worth seeking out. It's absolutely terrific. It's probably in one of my many rehab stays. That could be. That could be. Uh, so the voice you just heard was Tristan Harris, who is behind the uh, documentary The Social Dilemma, which I have praised lavishly and I ought to rewatch. And if you haven't watched it, you should watch it, too. Uh, but uh, I will let him speak for himself. Go ahead with the next clip, Michael. Each individual term referring to your political outgroup increased the odds of that post being retweeted or reshared by 67 percent. Your outgroup being outgroup your, your being opponents, people your on opponents, the, other side. the other side. Yeah, exactly. These platforms, are they not just reflecting who we are and what we think and the divisions that are already there? They're supercharging a hundred or a thousand times to one the worst parts of ourselves. Well, and, and I would guess the worst people among us, too, or at least the most angry, divisive. There's no way I'm reaching out and saying, hey, you're a nice guy. We disagree. Let's talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, that tone is practically gone from discourse. I hadn't noticed that either. <laughs> uh, go on. Next clip, Michael. 
Here's an example from the day the Department of Justice released a photo showing classified documents in former President Donald Trump's Florida home. A tweet highlighting a straight news story on the subject received about 2,000 likes. But a tweet from a Republican congresswoman calling Trump's opponents dumbasses was liked 10 times as much. And a tweet from the left labeling Donald Trump a traitor was liked 20 times more. There you go. That's all you need to know, really. Between the dumbasses and the traitors. I mean, come on. Yes, yes, Michael. You know what? That goes back to what I've told you before. People don't want to be informed. They want to be entertained. You're right. You're right. You're right. People would rather be entertained than informed. Or they definitely want their information to come with an entertainment flair. A, a bland right. headline of this happened, could be this, could be that, will take months to find out, is not going to get clicks. Well, and then you compare the appeal of A, uh, being informed and thinking, hmm, that's interesting, those are the facts, as, appealed, as opposed to righteous indignation. You get to feel like, we're right, they're wrong, and I'm pissed about it. People love that feeling. And so they were talking about likes there, I guess, if you like a, a, a tweet. But in terms of sharing information, if you uh, hang around with other people who think the same as you politically, you can't be sharing with them bland things. That's not going to be good for your uh, social standing. you got to right. be sharing with them extraordinarily exciting things. How about the aforementioned uh, Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at NYU, and his last quote is something. I mean, I'm surprised he still functions at NYU, but he addresses that. But uh, let's start with uh, 23 there, Michael. We are tribal creatures who love to do us versus them, and we're now learning to coexist with a technology that tries to force that down our throat, that tries to make us angry all the time. These changes in the technology that made everything much more viral and explosive, it's as though it gave everybody a dart gun. It's like it gave everybody the ability to complain, attack, criticize anyone at any time in a very short space with no need for evidence, no accountability. I never miss 60 minutes. I've, I've hardly missed a single 60 minutes since I was like 10 years old. Uh, but I didn't watch last night yet because I couldn't get it to load for some reason on my phone. But I want to see, do they come up with any, do they get to any solutions for any of this? That's what I wonder. Or is this just, and this, and did they end the segment within that's what will end humanity? Anyway, coming up next, a profile with Peyton Manning. Right, yeah. Well, I'm not, I don't know about Peyton Manning, but we're doomed is essentially the answer. No, it's not. There, there is an answer. And I will reveal it. Ending the internet. In a moment or two. Well, kind of, sort of, yeah. Has to do with a bold experiment going on at a, a school in the Northeast. Tell you about that in a minute. More with the great Jonathan Haidt. Oh, you know, I'm sorry, before you start that clip, he's talking about everybody has a dart gun. That was one of the, the main themes of his essay that I read to everybody, um, and that we uh, that we shoot criticism at each other constantly, and that's shaped discourse. Uh, but I don't want to steal his thunder. Go ahead, next clip. It's about 7 or 8% on each side. That's it? Yeah, that's right. So the extremes have been handed the power to dominate, even though they are fewer in number. That's right. Exactly. Roll on. It's what I call structural stupidity. That is, you have very smart people, highly educated, highly intelligent, 
But you put them in a situation in which dissent is punished severely, and what happens? They go silent. Hmm. And when, when the moderates, or when anyone is afraid to question the dominant view, the organization, the institution, gets stupid. So his main point there is that the dart guns everybody has been handed are used very, very often to shoot at people on our side, on our end mm. of things, if they show any sign that they might be straying from the doctrine or disloyal or willing to say, you know, they do have a good point on this, then the darts really, really come out. Wow, the policing your own side is as intense as attacking the other side. That's certainly true. Right, and hence the structural stupidity. Uh, One more clip from Height. As a professor, what do you do? I just avoid controversial topics. Really? Yes. Isn't that what college is for? It used to be. Yeah, how about that? He's got you. Got no choice. You wade into that, you won't last a week. You won't keep your job a week. You wade into controversial topics. I got to believe. Yeah, but then you sue and get a bunch of money eventually. Oh. I've read a couple of cases like that. But um, yeah, I just wish more. I mean, that guy. He's so smart. He's so right. He's got a great platform. He's got a, a million people like me who and us like admire him a great deal. The fact that he can't summon up the courage to really go at the evildoers is really discouraging to me. I know there's no way to do this, but if you could just lop off the. Most extreme, like, 5% of Twitter. I wonder how different it would look. That would be an interesting experiment to see play out. Yeah. Or whether the nature of the beast would make new people extreme? Yeah, I don't know. I don't actually know. Do the rules of the game just encourage that so much? It's it's tough to avoid the temptation. Uh, There's a great study out. I'm going to give you the very, very, very short version of it. Outside of school, America's teens average 70 hours per week glued to screens. 70 hours per week outside of school. So TikTok came up the other day because we were talking about TikTok last week and how what the average person watches 80 minutes a day. I've never watched a minute. So, uh, you know, somebody's making up, uh, picking up a lot of slack for those of us who don't ever use TikTok. And you mentioned how young people are more or less constantly on TikTok. Mm-hmm. So I asked my son about that, the seventh grader. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, he said the kids that have smartphones, he said, that's all they do. He said, that's all they do. I thought, wow, that's really interesting. He said, we're not allowed to do it in class, but like as soon as there's a break, like lunch hour, or as soon as school's over, everybody runs outside and it's all TikTok. Staring at their phones instead of each other. Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, again, the average kid spends 70 hours a week. That's 10 hours a day. That's the average. Whoa. Now, this uh, school in Massachusetts, it's a smallish uh, private high school. It's always prided itself on a close-knit community where family-style meals are eaten at round tables, students and teachers share in chores, et cetera, et cetera. But as smartphones became ubiquitous, faculty members say that sense of community eroded quickly. Students often looked down at screens during meals, even in class where phones were prohibited. Teachers grew tired of being gadget police. Kids retreated to the rooms after class to stroll and to scroll and text rather than gathering in student lounges. And when the COVID-19 pandemic hit, it even got worse, et cetera. You can picture this. It's sad. It's the modern era. I think it's sick. But the head guy realized something needed to be done late last year after a student live streamed a physical altercation. Watched on social media by many students, the fight became the talk of the school. So this guy and the other administrators began discussing a ban. 
And many students thought the school wouldn't actually go through with it. Stripping phones from teens was unrealistic, but it happened. This fall, students were not permitted to have smartphones on campus, and teachers agreed not to use them. Instead, they would all receive minimalist light phones for essential communication. The announcement resulted in chaos. Everyone was crying. Kids were yelling at us. Parent feedback was really mixed. Crying. Right. Right. Still, and uh, what time is it? Yeah, we probably ought to summarize this. The kids are loving it. The school is surveying students and teachers throughout the year to assess how the smartphone ban is going. In the first installment conducted in September, students said the ban hasn't been as bad as they feared. Teachers said students are more engaged in class. They can still have tablets and smartphones under smart watches under certain circumstances, et cetera, et cetera. But they interview kid after kid talking about, you know, at first it was weird, but, uh, uh, but they love it. I'm a lot happier being on social media less, says one young woman, 17 years old. I think I've been a lot more self-aware. Will I ever go back to having a phone with me all the time? I don't know, but I hope not. You will, unfortunately. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that that's almost universal, that reaction, whether it's kids or adults, whenever your devices are taken from you, that how refreshing it is and how much you like it. It's almost universal. Yes, it is. And and you know what's interesting about this? And some of the quotes from the kids, and it is slightly ironic, is how many people say, I feel so much more connected to people now that I'm not connected to social media or the Internet. Which you're doing, you're, you're telling yourself to be connected to people. I'm telling you, it's candy instead of a square meal. And I wish I could convince humanity of it, because I think it's doing us terrible damage, especially our young people. Armstrong and Getty. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Point of personal privilege. Don't get brazen with me. The Armstrong and Getty Show. What is sleep divorce? Well, this is the the name for it is not appropriate, I don't think, because divorce, divorce is horrible, but this is can be fine, depending on your situation. Sleep divorce is if a couple decides to sleep in separate beds or separate rooms due to differences in sleep patterns, habits, or preferences. Yeah, I call it sleep separation. Which I guess is uh, is uh, can be a whole bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Like one of you snores, or one of you likes a different temperature, or one of you insists there be a dog in the bed, and the other one says, mm-hmm. I ain't sleeping with a dog, mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But obviously, you don't want a divorce, so you sleep in uh, separate beds in the same room or different rooms or whatever. Sleep divorce. I, it, they claim here it's a growing trend. I have no idea if it is or not. Yeah, I wonder. Uh, and then occasionally you convene for uh, reindeer games or what have you. Some so-called expert who probably would be little to no help if you actually needed any help uh, says sleep divorce can actually have a positive impact on a relationship if the couple discusses the specifics of how it can help. Like, it's easier for me to text my boyfriend, she says, if oh, you're not in the same bed. That wouldn't help. That's a bad for instance. That wouldn't help. But if my snoring bothers you, you could sleep better. That would help. When so you sleep in the other room, I forget how much I hate you. <laughs> that probably is not it either. So it's a positive. You also need to discuss how long you intend to maintain this arrangement and alternate ways of establishing connection and intimacy outside of sharing a bed. So you, I guess you go with uh, Tuesdays at 8. I'll see you right here. Sound good? You're better mine, I guess. Yeah, boy. That whole thing. Mm. And it evolves through life. What a whole thing. You're talking about uh, uh, sex? Uh, or uh, 
It's very direct. That whole thing. I have sex. more of a Victorian attitude toward that sort of thing. I prefer more delicate terms. In your world, the, the, it's just that they kiss, and then the, the, the camera goes fuzzy, and then it's the next morning. Uh, occasionally, you, fa- you f- fade in on the fireplace. That's fine, too. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, you know, is it the whole, uh, you say, hey, a little later... Maybe we should let the let people think, or do you go with a shoulder rub, and the, or do you make an appointment? It's it's I don't know. Different people, uh, different things work for different people. I said eight o'clock. You're late. It's eight o five. Get out. <laughs> um, <laughs> I appreciate punctuality. Not tonight for you, dear. There was heavy traffic near the bathroom area. <laughs> uh, when you you know when you're twenty two, it's like listen. Always, all the time, every second of every single day, assume yes. Actually, that hasn't changed much on one side of the equation. No, it doesn't. Same assumption, dear. Yes, exactly. I tell you what, if I'm bleeding a lot, give me five minutes. (laughs) Other than that, it's a yes. Right. You mentioning the uh, fireplace reminded me Tesla has this thing. Where uh, the romantic setting? Have we talked about this? Have you heard this? They, they, I you, think so. You turn yeah. on the fireplace, and the big screen turns into a fireplace, and the heater comes on, so it feels <laughs> like the fireplace on. And then Elon has a uh, uh, a collect a mixtape basically that automatically plays, and it's all you know, sexy music. Wow! So you turn on the fireplace, you got a roaring fireplace right there in your car with the sexy music playing. And is there some button that you you press to have the seats kind of fold down and flattish <laughs> or something? Because what a funny thing to do. You know, this is probably over some sort of line, but I remember as a kid, as a teenager, growing up with references to uh, romantic couplings in a car. Again, uh, much more Victorian than Jack over here with his S-E-X word. Um, and then as I moved into the part of my life where that sort of thing became conceivable, I quickly realized logistically this is very challenging. Unless you have, oh, maybe, you know what the difference is? If you're writing a song in the 1960s, you're sitting in a, you know, uh, Chevy Malibu that's about 35 feet long. Right. Yeah. And it has a back seat that you could, you know, house a family of four in. Back seat practically is bed-sized, yeah. Right. And here I am going out on dates in my, my parents' Plymouth Horizon, if you remember those, which was on its best day a crappy car and very small. Um, and it was like... I t- Two squirrels couldn't do it in here. I was reading, uh, the, I don't remember why this article was there, but I was reading the other day about what a crisis that was when automobiles became a thing and people had them and young people could go out on dates on them and how horrifying it was for parents, which, yeah, all of a sudden there's a mobile bedroom. Your, 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 your young girl and her boyfriend are headed out in it, which had never happened to before. Mm. Now all of a sudden there's a mobile bedroom. They could go park anywhere. Yeah. That's, that's a change. That's an overnight change in the, uh, the whole thing. I'll bet it was. I'll bet it was. Armstrong and Getty. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega-hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. 
It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. So I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. Depression. The Armstrong and Getty Show. Jack and I have both made reference to Elliot Ackerman's fabulous book. Uh, I took it in via audio. Did you as well, Jack? I think you have to take it in through audio because the author who served in Afghanistan and Iraq and a lot of different places, uh, reads the book, and I think that adds a lot to it. Mm. Um, I think this should be required for all voting-age adults in America and every high school. That's how much I think of this book. Yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant and terrific and very readable-slash-listenable. Uh, again, it's uh, The Fifth Act. Find it wherever audiobooks are distributed. Um, and I agree that the author reading it is great. Um, so... Uh, Interestingly enough, in the last chapter, he talks about a couple of different issues that are definitely related to the Afghanistan thing, uh, but more about the current state of American politics and American life. And by the end of this book, you will agree he has earned the right to discuss these things. Abe Lincoln once said, it's one of my favorite Quotes of his from his Lyceum Address. If destruction be our lot, we must ourselves be its author and finisher. As a nation of free men, we must live through all time or die by suicide. 
I hope I am overwary, but if I am not, there is, even now, something of ill omen amongst us. His point being, the things that make America great make us so great, we will not be defeated from outside unless we kill ourselves, obviously. And just as one more aside before we get into some of what Elliot Ackerman had to say, um, Jack and I are... uh, embarked on this naive and idiotic uh, quest to help the country stay together as opposed to profiting from it being torn apart. And there's a lot in politics and in talk radio, in media, that is all about profiting as much as possible while pouring gasoline on the fires. Now, that's not to say all disagreement or strong rhetoric is out of line. It's not. I mean, if you believe something strongly, you ought to express it strongly. But the whole uh, our, our greatest enemies are our fellow Americans thing, that is unhealthy. So uh, let's start with uh, some of what Elliot Ackerman said so eluquently. Michael, just give us eighty eighty one back to back. The politicization of American life is swiftly oh, I'm becoming I'm sorry. Total. Can you stop it? I, In 19, I knew the there was politicization. Something. I knew there was something else I meant to say. I ought to write this stuff down because I have the memory of a 130-year-old. Um, he had just gotten through discussing all-out warfare, which was mostly a, a, a development of the 20th century, really, your world wars. And uh, Eisenhower warning us about the military-industrial complex in an era of all-out warfare. Okay, back to 1881. The politicization of American life is swiftly becoming total with virtually no opinion or thought existing outside the realm of partisan sorting. In 1939, when America was emerging from the throes of the Great Depression, our military ranked 19th largest in the world, standing behind Portugal. The Second World War and the Cold War that followed epitomized what theorists call total war, in which every facet of a society is mobilized. This was a departure from centuries past, when nations typically waged limited war, relying on professional armies instead of the widespread enlistment of its citizenry and means of national production. One consequence of total war is that even non-military parts of society become military targets. Manufacturing, agriculture, energy, even civilian populations. By the time Eisenhower delivered his address, total war had reached its zenith. As the development of civilization-ending nuclear weapons had made the human race's continued existence contingent on a precarious doctrine of mutually assured destruction between the United States and the Soviet Union. Any comment, or uh, shall we plunge on? I think we all understand total war. Every facet of the society is involved. Yeah, which is what China's trying to pull off right now. Right, and and you can see it in Ukraine, too. Putin attacking everything from energy to food to to apartment buildings and kindergartens. All right, roll on, Michael. One way to measure our current state of total politics is to look at the ballooning economics of presidential campaigns. Listen to this. In the 1980 presidential election, spending by Republicans and Democrats combined totaled $60 million, $190 million when adjusted for inflation. In 2020, filings showed that the election cost $14.4 billion, which represents a 75 times increase in spending. 
we're now spending 75 times as much on our presidential elections. I can't I can't imagine anybody that would argue that that's a good development that we've gone from spending 200 million dollars for a presidential election to however many billion that was. Yeah, from 190 million to 14.4 billion. Is there anybody of any political stripe or ideology that could argue that that's a good thing? I don't I can't imagine what your argument would be. Yeah, I'm tempted to go off on one of my usual screeds about how that is just such manifest proof that the government now has way too much power, way too much money, and why we're obsessed with the president in particular as a godhead that will lead us to salvation. But anyway, um, so again, his, his point, his greater point is, is coming. The fact that we're now like total war in a state of total politics. Roll on, Mike. While the military industrial complex fed off the U.S. Soviet Cold War conflict, the political-industrial complex feeds off the left-right conflict. If the military-industrial complex led us into a paradigm of perpetual wars with little hope of victory and no end in sight, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, then the political-industrial complex has led us into a paradigm of perpetual campaigns in which our political class needs divisive issues to fight over more than it needs solutions to the issues themselves. Crucial issues like gun control, immigration, and health care. Well, that's why I've been so hesitant to, to get into the conversation among uh, the political class, to which, uh, to what extent we are in that, I don't know, but the political class who months ago would be saying, we're now just... 15 weeks from the election and just just the that being the 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 only star out there for us to point our eyes toward for anything that is of interest at all in our lives when is the next election where are things right now in the polls for the next election and they'll start that again the day after this coming election right right agreed completely um go ahead play the next clip then i'll make a point michael our passions are being inflamed and manipulated for profit by political industrial complex that feeds off our basis fears of one another. Our experiment in democracy has worked when it appeals to the best in us, as opposed to the worst. Eisenhower recognized this, and it was the instinct he appealed to in each of us as he closed his farewell address. Down the long lane of history, yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be, instead, a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. And if we do become a community of dreadful fear and hate? Uh, That was an odd place to edit it. Uh, Why don't we go ahead and finish it with the last clip? (laughs) In the Cold War, failure meant mutually assured destruction through nuclear war. It was an outcome that, fortunately, never arrived. Though it's instructive that Eisenhower's farewell address came a little less than two years before the Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest humanity has ever come to nuclear annihilation. Today, we sit on a different sort of precipice. Are we entering an era where we hold elections in a nation so hopelessly divided that neither side is willing to accept defeat? Yes. In a democracy, that is the truest form of mutually assured destruction. Yes, that that last thing you described, that is what we're uh, headed for. 
screaming toward, and I don't think there's any arresting it. You know, I appreciate him putting such a beautiful label on something we've been talking about for a very long time, the political-industrial complex that profits off of left-right conflict, therefore must keep it stoked at every moment. And in a state of perpetual election, which everybody has recognized is the, is the current the current state, without a doubt. Right, right. Uh, you know, what to do about it on, on our show is something Jack and I discuss a fair amount, but um, in greater society, and again, this is a naive and idiotic uh, quest that we're on, um, but, you know, what the hell. Uh, I'm reminded of one of my favorite quotes from Aldous Huxley, uh, who said, and I've mentioned this, quote, several times in the context of the woke crowd, the critical theory crowd, the Black Lives Matter, defund the police crowd, who are so cruel and vicious. They end careers over the slightest misstep. Literally. Drive people into despair and poverty because they used a word that was okay last year, but not this year. They're vicious. Here's the Huxley quote. The surest way to work up a crusade in favor of some good cause is to promise people they will have a chance of maltreating someone, to be able to destroy with good conscience, to be able to behave badly and call your bad behavior righteous indignation. That is the height of psychological luxury, the most delicious of moral treats. I uh, I love this topic, but I would point out that the book is an awful lot of battle scenes from Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, and what the wars were like. But I couldn't recommend this book more highly. I, I honestly mean I think you will be a better voter and citizen for the rest of your life if you read that book. I particularly think you should listen to it. Yeah, it covers a lot of ground from uh, the politics of war to the actual fighting of war to the moral uh, culpability of warriors and the guilt of survivors and just it, it covers a tremendous amount of ground it's incredibly insightful you learn a lot about afghanistan uh but uh, again this segment is not a book review it's to discuss you know what we've been discussing and it's okay to be strongly partisan but i would urge you all to be aware of when you're being manipulated not not informed or um or just legitimately, you know, well, informed by the political industrial complex, but when you're being manipulated. Armstrong and Getty. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. More Than a Movie is back with season two of the award-winning film podcast, and this time with a lot more movies. I'm your host, Alex Fumero, and each week I'm going to talk to the people behind some of my favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts. 
of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the OG spy kid, Alexa Penavega. You had Carlo Gugino, who's the coolest mom ever. You had Antonio, who's handsome, amazing, charismatic. And then Carmen and Juni. I felt like a lot of other kids felt like this could be me. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Every episode will feature interviews with the biggest actors, directors, writers, and producers behind your favorite films and tap into the history of Latinos in film. Listen to More Than a Movie as part of the My Cultura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jack Armstrong and Joe Getty. I So I came across this in the Wall Street Journal. It certainly struck a chord with me. Short, temporary instances of forgetfulness are increasing, researchers say. uh, The sort of thing that often are called senior moments among people over, I don't know what age. Um, But they're happening to more of us at more ages, experts say. People finding it difficult to recall simple things like the names of friends, coworkers we haven't seen um, words that should come easily, how to perform routine acts that once seemed like second nature. We're all struggling with this right now, and they believe it's because all the amount of change that has gone on in the last couple of years, all the change that has happened at a speed that has never happened in human history, consumes cognitive energy, often much more than we think, neuroscientists say. It's no wonder we can't remember... Um, a lot of things that we used to be able to remember. Our minds. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, right? I, I, anyway. Well, that's just plain old old. Uh, our <laughs> minds are struggling with transition moments. Our brains are like computers with so many tabs open right now. That's a good way to look at it. That is, yeah. I have way more tabs open in my brain than I did ten years ago, and certainly more than I had thirty years ago. Oh, yeah, other than, like, different clothing styles or music. I mean, uh, between 1980 and 88, uh, there weren't. Uh, you didn't have to, like, rethink the world over and over again. Oh, God, not even close. Hardly the way you anything... interact with the world, specifically. Maybe you had to learn to use a, a, a VCR machine. By today's standards, the difference between 1975 and 1990 was practically nothing. Um, Our brains are like computers with so many tabs open right now. The chronic and cumulative stress of the past years has taken its toll. Research led by these various doctors they mentioned here show that people who have experienced 
uh, life stressors have impaired memory. That's always been true if some big stress happens in your life. Well, everybody is experiencing life stressors now all the time because we're just, we're not, we're not built to deal with a tremendous amount of rapid change. If we were built to deal with that, in previous times, you probably would have gone crazy, right? Right. With the um, how, how, how static things were. Oh, I see what you're saying, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you add to that the not only the politics and the media is constantly trying to stress you to get you to click. And then, and, and I think this is underrated, and I'm trying to remind myself on a near daily basis, that downtime when you're bored. Mm-hmm. They You're not staring at your phone. You're not flipping through articles. Well, oh, if, okay, I'll let scholars yeah. speak. I'm glad you mentioned that because that does come up here. Um, stress negatively affects our, affects our attention span and sleep, which also impacts memory. Chronic stress, stress can damage the brain. But we're also doing other things, which neuroscientists say makes it even harder to encode memories in the first place uh, because of the way we scroll through our phones and take information at such a pace and never take a break from it. So we're exacerbating the problem that exists. It's, 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 I hate to use the term perfect storm, but I don't know what a, is better. Uh, a bunch of things conveniently came together at the same time that are all negative, and they probably reinforce each other. Things are happening at a faster pace because of social media and all that sort of thing. But the fact that we never stop and let our brains slow down at a time when things are changing so fast, oh, my right. God, it's it's a layered on top of things. It's like you started eating more cake and stopped exercising at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Well, the best description I ever read, and it was a while back, so forgive me if it's a little vague, but of what we do in our downtime when you're bored or when you're asleep or whatever, what your brain does is it it files things, it labels them, it finds relationships, kind of cross-tabs them, uh, and cross-references stuff, and, and puts it in an order that you can access. It does its filing. And we never do any filing. So our brains are giant stacks of unrelated documents piled up on a desk or on a kitchen counter. We never take the time to file. This seems to be fairly well agreed upon, what you just said. Mm-hmm. Why, why, why aren't there, aren't, there aren't PSAs on the radio station or the TV or billboards saying, carve out some time where you don't stare at your phone today? That might be the best thing we can do for society. The single best thing. It might be, indeed. Uh, yeah. I know I I need to do better. I need to do way better of uh, getting my kids to where, okay, we're going to do something that's got no, not, not looking at screens, no music playing, just no TV on in the background, just, just got to find something to do. And they always look at me with tremendous fear. As soon as I break into the, ah, ah, kind of like I feel like if I'm standing in line Starbucks and I know it's going to be an entire 45 seconds before I get my coffee and I realize I don't have my phone with me. Oh, my God. I've got 45 seconds to kill and I don't have my phone. What All right, is calm, that weird calm feeling down. of dread? Calm down now. Calm down. You're going to be okay. Stare at that guy over there. He's got kind of funny clothes on. Maybe you can think about that for a second. Wow, that's that's how would you describe that emotion? It's almost that of a junkie who realizes, oh, "Oh my God, I forgot my drug. I think I don't know. I've never been a junkie, but it's weird. It didn't exist. It didn't exist in my own brain. Not that many years ago. If I was in line at the grocery store, I was just in line and I'm just going to wait. I didn't think, oh, I don't have my phone. 
can't check and see if anybody texted me after any news headlines or a sports score or something. Now, you might get a little impatient until you get up close enough to the tabloids to read Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and break up drama. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking, wow, I didn't hear they'd broken up. And you right. read it and then pick it up, flip through it, then put it back because you're not going to be seen spending your money on that garbage. But you're right. kind of curious. Kanye West reveals cancer diagnosis to family. Yeah. Something <laughs> no, else did. that didn't happen. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I'm glad I did this segment just to remind myself. I've, I've got to, I've become friends with somebody who's like a brain expert, PhD brain expert person. Mm. I've been asking him, well, I'm going to ask him about this. How important do you all think this is? It's got to be right up there at the very top of importance. Unless, though, maybe the other side of it is, look, this is the new world. This is what brains are going to be. Adapt. Adapt or fall behind. Yeah, I don't know. No? Adapt by going crazy? Yeah. Adapt by not being able to remember anything and uh, nah, Excellent being stressed. Point. And uh, please, uh, 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 depression, anxiety, suicide. It's all up. Good, good, good counterpoint. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie. Because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to More Than a Movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleha Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.